Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Tour Guide Tell All. I am one of your friendly neighborhood tour guides here to talk to you guys about all things fun and scandalous and interesting and exciting. I'm Rebecca. And I'm Becca. And we are the the Rebecca's. Rebecca's. (laughs) Yay. And we're here. It's still October. It's still fall. It's still the best season in the whole calendar. And we are here to talk to you guys about some spooky stories and, you know, the darker side of uh, our already dark and scandalous podcast. We, this month, are leaning into the season and talking. We've talked about a cemetery. We've talked about Columbus and why he's kind of trash. Going to talk about spies next week. It's all very exciting. So this week, what is spookier than death? So we're going to talk about our top five favorite deaths in the United States Capitol, which is super fun. And as we mentioned last week, the fact that we mentioned this, these are our top five favorites means there have been others that are just not quite as exciting. (laughs) I will say as tour guides, I feel like one of the things we get asked a lot, or I certainly get asked a lot is, you know, what's the most haunted part of Washington, DC? Where are the most haunted places? And if you listen to one of our previous episodes, you know that Georgetown being the oldest neighborhood has lots and lots of ghost stories. But I would say kind of after maybe the Georgetown neighborhood and maybe after the White House, because there's all kinds of ghost stories at the White House. And I've never spent the night there, so I can't say for sure if it's haunted. I think the Capitol building is one of the most allegedly haunted places in the city. And it's no surprise because there have been many, many people who have died on the grounds of the Capitol and some of them in really kind of insane or mind-blowing ways or very uh, spooky ways. So we're going to definitely highlight that. I will just do a caveat. I've never stayed the night in the Capitol. I have never personally seen a ghost, but I would not be surprised. And I trust anybody who says they've had these encounters because so many people, so many have died. Oh my gosh. So many. Well, when you think about it, there's 535 members of Congress now, and that's the same, that's been the same for a while, 100 senators, 435 reps, that's been that way for a while. And even before we had as many states as we had, that's still a lot of people, you know, in and out of the Capitol. Some of them change, some of them don't, but we have elections every two years. So that's a lot of people that are kind of coming and going. And I did a little research and there has not been too many sessions of Congress that have not included the death of a sitting member. Even this current session has had, there's three members of the House of Representatives that have died, not in the Capitol. But now people tend to die outside of the Capitol, like in hospitals and things. But there have the almost every session of Congress, they've lost at least one sitting member. Yes, my, my little bit of trivia is if you take take out any attacks on the Capitol. If you take out what happened in 1998, there was an attack at Capitol Security on Capitol Police. And the last person to have actually died in the Capitol as a member of Congress was in 1963. There have been plenty of people who have been then rushed out and like you said, died in hospitals and things. But it's something that still has happened even in the modern day, not just in the 1800s. Yes, this is a thing. And so we're going to talk about the five that we think are kind of the most interesting and the most fun. So it goes roughly chronological and then we'll kind of loop back, which is kind of a nice progression. We did that accidentally, but let's pretend we did it on purpose. So the first one we're going to talk about is John Quincy Adams. I really want to do a podcast just on JQA someday. JQA is great. He is an, an, I think, an underrated and often missed president. And he's one of those presidents that his whole life was really cool. And being president was kind of like 
part of it, but he did a lot of cool stuff. He went to Russia and spent time there at a t- when Americans didn't go there. He was the son, obviously, of John Adams, our second president and signer of the Declaration of Independence. And he, we have actually talked about him before in our pod. Becca, do you remember when we talked about him? We talked about John Quincy Adams. I don't remember when we talked about him. That's terrible. With Henry Clay. The corrupt bargain. Oh, with Henry Clay. Oh, of course, because we talked about this election of 1824. Yes. Um, so yeah, the Henry Clay episode will give you good context for Stone Quincy Adams. Yes. He runs for president and he kind of wins, but kind of doesn't at the same time. And immediately upon becoming president, uh, one of the guys he runs against, Andrew Jackson, cuts him off at the knees. And so invalidates his entire presidency. And so he's four years in the White House and does not win re-election. And Jackson does because Jackson spent the four years that JQA is president running against him. And so John Quincy Adams is like, well, this stinks. And he's still at this point pretty young. He's not quite 60. So he's got a lot lot of life left in him. And he basically goes back home to his home district in Massachusetts, sort of south of Boston-ish, and is going to run for his old seat in Congress, win, and then basically come back to Washington to be a thorn in Andrew Jackson's side for the next eight years. I just have to say, when he runs for his congressional seat, again, when he's like, all right, I'm going, he actually put a letter out into the newspaper in what is now Quincy, I guess then was still Braintree. And he says, I'm going to solicit the seat. I'm making two promises to the voters of this district. One, I will always vote my conscience. And two, I will never solicit your vote. So he basically promises to never campaign. And the hard-hearted people of Massachusetts, the cold New Englanders they are, they send him to Congress nine terms. Because they're just like, we love it. We don't ever want to hear from you. Please don't come campaign. Don't come ask for our vote. Right. We don't want to hear from you. It sounds good. He serves for 18 more years in Congress. It's so great. It really is. Like, don't campaign. You're good. Fine. Bother Andrew Jackson, please. (laughs) And that's what he does. And he stays even after Andrew Jackson is gone. And John Quincy Adams basically forms the like principled opposition. And it's really amazing. And he, after uh, nine terms, which is 18 years, he's kind of getting up in years. He's 80 years old in 1848. And He is in February of that year. They're having a vote in the House of Representatives and it comes to him. He votes loudly, no, and then he falls over and has a stroke. And this is disruptive. Obviously, one of the members of the House has had a stroke on the floor. And so they're going to carry him out because he's unconscious and they lay him on a couch in sort of a backside room and he kind of revives himself and he thanks everybody for supporting him and helping him. And he basically stays on that couch for the next day and a half and he gets better and then gets worse. And he's going to die having not moved in the Capitol two days later. And the thing I love best about this is the couch is still used. It's still in the Capitol. It's not in the same room. It's kind of deep in rooms that are not public, but it is used. And if you look the dark corners of the internet, you can actually find a picture of the couch that John Quincy Adams died laying on in the United States Capitol. I think it's also very fitting, this man who spent truly his entire life from the time he's a teenager on in politics, dies at the United States Capitol building, doing what he loves. His last words were, this is the last of earth I am content, which only a really true blue politician could say about dying 
the United States Capitol building. And then it's just another little coda. We mentioned in our previous episode about Oak Hill Cemetery, about Congressional Cemetery. John Quincy Adams was originally interred at Congressional Cemetery briefly before his body could be transported to Quincy, Massachusetts. Um, I think because of the time of year, he passed away February. They likely had to wait for the thaw in Massachusetts before they transported him, is my guess. Uh, but there is still a cenotaph today. There is still basically a marker denoting where Adams was interred. So if you visit Congressional Cemetery, you can pay your respects to John Quincy Adams. But we had plugged Congressional before and I wanted to bring it up again. Yes, he's amazing. And also like, if you look at the picture of the couch, it doesn't look like a particularly comfortable place on which to spend your last day and a half. We will link up to a picture in the show notes, but... I could think of more comfortable places. At any rate, that's John Quincy Adams. And we are, I'm going to send it over to Becca. We're going to jump forward a little bit and talk about Henry Wilson. So Henry Wilson is a name that will come up again in our next episode when we're talking about spies. So I'm not going to talk too much about his life before he becomes vice president. But Henry Wilson, also from Massachusetts, like John Quincy Adams, coincidentally, he's a longtime member of Congress with big ambitions, right? Like many people in Washington, he sees himself wanting to someday be president. And for him, the natural jumping off point is vice president. So he makes several attempts at being vice president. He's going to try really hard to be vice president under Ulysses S. Grant in his first term. Grant or the convention will ultimately choose Schuyler Colfax, who had previously been Speaker of the House under Lincoln uh, when Lincoln was president. So Grant ends up having Colfax. Wilson remains in the Senate. But Schuyler Colfax turns out to be a really bad idea for Grant because he is just plagued with scandal his entire vice presidency. And Grant, you know, he's really a military guy. He's not so much a politician. So when it comes time for his second term, Grant's like, you know what, I need somebody like Henry Wilson. This is a man who was hard on the side of the union during the Civil War. He's been in Congress a long time. He knows politics. His reputation is above reproach. Like, this is the man I need. I don't need someone smarmy. I just need a guy who's going to do the work. So he's going to choose, or he's going to really promote and support Wilson as the vice presidential candidate. So Wilson's like, yes, vice president, I got what I wanted, except that at this point, I'm not a young man, and I'm now going to have a series of strokes, which is what happens. So Wilson is going to, just when he becomes vice president, have a series of strokes that are really going to be problematic for him. It's going to leave him partially paralyzed. He's going to have a difficulty speaking. People who know him will say the last couple years of his life, he always spoke very thickly, like he sort of had trouble just even forming the words. That said, he just doesn't stop. He's kind of like some, a lot of these guys, it's like the only thing they've ever known is being in politics. So he just continues to write and write and write and speak and speak and speak. When he was campaigning for Grant, I mean, he was traveling thousands of miles, even though he had had this stroke. But things really sort of reach a point in 1875. In 1875, there have been periods where like he was so close to death. They were like, this is going to be it. And then he pulled back and he'd be so close that he pulled back. And then he spends a lot of his last few months attending funerals of his colleagues because he has outlived many of the men that he had served with in Congress by 1875, I mean, he's pushing up into his 60s, which in the 19th century was kind of late in life. 1875, he's in the Senate. He's in poor health, but his doctor has given him some instructions. And what his doctor has told him is that every day he needs to soak in a nice warm bath. And this is going to be good for the humors and good for his body and keep him healthy. And when I say like he was supposed to like soak in a bath every day, I don't mean he left the Capitol, went back home and soaked in a bath. He would soak in his bath at the United States Capitol building because... 
This is one of my favorite little parts about this. <laughs> because at this point at the United States Capitol building, there were massive marble tubs, large marble tubs located on site. So they had bathing facilities. They had a barber shop. They had places for these guys to spiffen up. Because we need to remember that these members of Congress, when they were coming to D.C., they were coming maybe for a few weeks at a time. And then they were gone for a couple of months. The, the congressional schedule was different in the 19th century because travel was so much more difficult. And these these guys were staying usually in boarding houses or hotels or renting out rooms. And there was very little indoor plumbing and very little, in, by the way, of bath facilities. So if you wanted the Senate to be hygienic and you wanted it to not be a totally disgusting room of unwashed men, you had to have these tubs on site. And so they were for use for the members of Congress. So Wilson gets into a tub. He's soaking, he's soaking, he's soaking. And then while he's in the tub, he has a stroke. Another stroke, uh, one of many that he has in his life. But this time he's in trouble. He cannot move. He cannot get himself out of this tub. So he calls for help. He gets carried up. And when I say gets carried up, he gets carried up to his office. As vice president, he is also president of the Senate, which means there's an office for the vice president at the Senate where they get to, you know, take meetings and do work. And so he's carried up to the vice presidential office. He's laid out onto a couch. He's going to rest those next few days. He'll still be taking meetings, but he's really in no condition to move or go anywhere. He is told a few days after this stroke in a bathtub that one of his colleagues, Oris Ferry, has died. Wilson then says... That makes 83 dead with whom I have sat in the Senate. He rolled over and passed away on the couch in the vice president's office. So second guy on a couch, I'll just say. And third, while the couch does not still exist, the vice presidential office in the Senate still does. And inside the vice presidential office today, there's a bust of Henry Wilson and there is a plaque on the wall uh, at the spot where the couch was situated. So to denote the fact that this is where Wilson spent his final, final hours. Now, I thought they'd moved the vice president's office. The vice president's office now that he knew was, I thought was now the Senate cloakroom. I think it is the Senate cloakroom. I don't okay. know. Yeah, that's what I thought. They'd redone that because I believe the vice president's office is in a different part of the Capitol now. Um, they still have one because they're still president of the Senate. Also, the for our listeners, the marble bathtubs are still there. They're not used, which is probably for the best, to be honest. But the marble bathtubs are very much still in evidence in the Capitol. In fact, if you take a Capitol tour through like a congressional office or whatever, they can they'll usually show you show them to you. They're like built into the wall. They're fairly decent, nice uh, marble bathtubs. The Wilson bust was commissioned specifically to commemorate Wilson's death, and it was designated for display in the vice president's room. So I assume that that means it moved when the vice president's room relocated. But the plaque is in what you're correct. What is the Senate cloakroom today? But the spot where he actually died. But I think the bust has moved with into the vice presidential room because you can see pictures of it in more modern times. Cool. And that's nice. that's Henry Wilson. We're going to find out a little bit more about his extracurricular activities next week. So then we're going to go forward in time a little more to 1890. Uh, there's a congressman from Kentucky, Talby, and he is third term congressman and he gets disgraced. He's caught with a woman, not his wife, in a 
compromising position. And the guy who exposes this, this newspaper reporter, Charles Kincaid, he catches him in the act, essentially, and writes this great headline that silver-tongued Talby caught in flagrante. And so with a headline like that, like, your political career is over. And so Talby decides not to run for another term in Congress, which is probably wise. Um, And he decides instead to become a lobbyist. And so comes back to Washington. And because he's a lobbyist and because Kincaid is still a reporter, they encounter each other, as you do, uh, walking around the Capitol. This is their beat. And they will exchange angry words because Talby blames Kincaid for the the death of his political career. And so as they do, these hot-headed guys are going to exchange nasty words whenever they see each other. And it kind of escalates over a period of time. And eventually, Talby is heard to be threatening Kincaid in front of other people. And they've exchanged angry words. And at some point, and Talby says to a group of people within earshot of Kincaid that that small pint of cider fellow better arm himself. And so Kincaid takes this as a threat, like he's just been threatened by Talby. And so the next day, Kincaid shows up at the Capitol with a gun on him because he's been warned he should arm himself. And they are on the steps in the house wing, these lovely marble steps leading up to the house gallery. And Talby is going down, Kincaid is going up, and Kincaid pulls out his gun and is going to, after more angry words are exchanged, he's going to shoot Talby on the steps uh, of the house gallery on the house wing. Talby does not die immediately. He's actually brought away from the stairs and dies elsewhere of gangrene a couple of days later. Kincaid, the reporter, is going to be uh, claim self-defense and is freed based because he says he was threatened and this was self-defense. However, the coda to this story that I love the best is on the spot where the um, where they shot where he shot him, Talby's blood is still stains the steps, the marble steps. There are still spots of blood. You can see them to this day. Apparently blood does not come out of marble as easily as you might think it does. And there are reporters that still use these staircases because the staircase is still in use. And reporters to this day will claim that if they walk over the blood spot without knowing what they're doing, they will find them slippery because it's the ultimate revenge of Talby against the uh, DC press corps. So the blood spots from Talby's bleeding body uh, are still on the steps of the house gallery. If you do get gallery passes, and obviously gallery is closed uh, at the present time, but if it reopens and you get gallery gallery passes, typically the way that security will have you go up usually includes these stairs. So be sure to take a look down if you're ever going. One of my favorite things about this is the way it was reported in the press in Kentucky. And there was a newspaper headline after the shooting. And the headline was settled a grudge, which is one way to describe it, I guess. But it was settled a grudge and then blood on the marble stairs, (laughs) which is just so great. Excellent. I love the Talby Kincaid story because it just shows that animosity between press and politician, which has existed for all of time. 
Moving further ahead into the 20th century, 1941, a man named Morris Edelstein, Morris Michael Edelstein, he is a Polish immigrant who comes to the United States. He's part of this wave of immigration, comes when he's like a, a little child uh, with his family, right as we're getting to the turn of the century. And he's like the American dream, right? You come here, you go to school, you make a better life for yourself, and he gets elected to Congress. And he's serving, representing uh, New York, which is where he is from. So it's 1941. It's the summer of 1941. And at this point, what everybody is talking about is the Second World War. The Second World War has been raging in Europe, and there has been continued debate and pressure in the United States about our involvement. At this point, we are still out of the war, technically. There's strong isolationist perspective. If you want good context on this, you should listen to our Charles Lindbergh episode, which goes over a lot of what's sort of happening in the country at this time. But more and more, there is talk about the United States joining the war. In fact, just a few months prior, President Franklin D. Roosevelt had given a State of the Union address at the United States Capitol building, really basically preparing America for the reality of this war being something that we were going to have to be involved with. And there is a man who gets up to give a speech from Mississippi named John Elliott Rankin. John Elliott Rankin is a bad dude. Like, if you look at his record in the Congress, it's not great. I mean, he is opposed to interracial marriage. He supports poll taxes. He is just opposed to anything that is unbigoted or unprejudiced. And he is an outspoken racist and an outspoken anti-Semite. And he gets up to give this just long intensely racist and horrible speech about this war. And he's really talking about how we are being forced into getting into this war by our international Jewish brethren. And he says they're trying to harass the president of the United States into plunging us into this European war. And it's it's rubbing people the wrong way, but particularly Edelstein, who is one of a handful of Jewish men who are serving in Congress at this time. And so immediately he called Edelstein calls for the floor and he's going to offer a rebuttal. And he basically, oh, go ahead. No, I'm sorry. And I love this part because Morris Edelstein is in his first term. He was just elected like in November of 1940. So now it's June of 1941. And first term members of Congress are supposed to be seen and not heard and maybe not even seen. Like they're not really supposed to do a whole lot. But Edelstein is so upset at this and he's so affronted that he is going to ask for the floor and he's going to give this impromptu speech. Yeah, going up against, you know, somebody like Rankin, who at this point had been in Congress for almost 20 years, you know, had been there a long time, and he's going to get up and give this rebuttal. And it's so passionate. Um, He's going to talk about how it is completely insane to blame this on Jewish people. He basically says this is how Hitler started. Hitler started by speaking out about Jewish brethren and using this to sort of as these demagogues. Uh, He talks about using the phrase of like international banker and all these like kind of dog whistle words that Rankin was using. And then Edelstein, uh, and this is all completely off the cuff. He hadn't prepared these remarks. This is in response to what Rankin says. He wraps it up with this. I deplore the idea that any time anything happens, whether it be for a war policy or against a war policy, men in this house and outside this house attempt to use the Jews as their scapegoat. I say it is unfair and I say it is un-American. As a member of this house, I deplore the allegations because we are living in a democracy. All men are created equal regardless of race, creed, or color. Whether a man be a Jew or a Gentile, he may think what he deems fit. 
which is just so incredible and so powerful and so brave. This, like, like you said, this first time congressman kind of going to the mat. And, you know, he says his piece, he walks off the floor, he heads to the cloakroom, and he has a fatal heart attack. That is it. I mean, Edelstein just drops dead. And, you know, you're the Speaker of the House. A guy drops dead in the cloakroom. What are you going to try to do? I want to close the session. To You're going to try to recess. You're yeah. going to try to close. The Speaker can't because what happens next are five impromptu eulogies. Five men on the floor immediately start eulogizing Edelstein, start using this moment as a chance to pontificate. So there's about an hour of eulogizing before the Speaker can actually close the session. So Morris Edelstein is a name that I don't think a lot of people know. I don't think he's particularly remembered because of his time in Congress was so short. But I I love this moment of standing up to the bigots, standing up to the anti-Semites, standing up at this moment where there is such heated rhetoric around the Second World War. And I don't know whether or not that's what caused his heart attack, but it certainly gives him, I think, a hero's exit. Oh, I absolutely think so. I think he's definitely a hero. And then you're going to do John Lenthal. Oh, right, right. I guess I will wrap it up. So there have been plenty of other deaths, and we might touch on a couple others in our wrap-up. But I want to circle back around. We were going kind of chronologically, but one of the very first deaths to occur inside the Capitol building happen while it's under construction. The original architect of the Capitol was a man named William Thornton. He has the original design of the Capitol building. The Capitol building will be constructed. Congress will move in to meet for the first time in 1800, but there's still construction going on in the building. And a lot of that is being overseen by an architect named Benjamin Latrobe. There's a man working for Latrobe called John Lenthal. Lenthal was the clerk of works. So he was basically helping oversee this construction project. And one of the things that they needed to work on that hadn't been done early in the project was a place for the Supreme Court to meet. Today we have a beautiful Supreme Court building, but it wasn't constructed until or finished until 1935. So prior to 1935, the Supreme Court met inside of the United States Capitol building. And it was kind of one of those things early on where it was like, we know we have a Supreme Court. We really didn't think about putting a place for them to meet. So Thornton sort of says, yeah, in the basement, we're going to put this Supreme Court chamber, but it was one of uh, a later parts of the construction. So the old Supreme Court chamber was being constructed early in 1800. And you used to be able to see this on the Capitol tour. Now it's a little bit harder to see, but you can sort of imagine down in the dregs of the building is where this old Supreme Court chamber was. Lenthal had been working on this for Latrobe. You can imagine they were doing sort of this unusual design. They had this these arches, kind of archways inside the building, and they had been working on them using wooden supports to keep the ceiling in place. Lenthal's looking around. He's like, I think we are done. Time to remove the wooden supports. And when he does that, it turns out, twist, the supporting arc in the room was not ready It was not complete. It was not sturdy. And so it is going to collapse on Lenthal. He's going to essentially die right there, crushed by the ceiling of the old Supreme Court chamber. Now, it is rumored that when they rush to get to him, that Lenthal curses the United States Capitol building with his dying breath. And so anytime there is construction on the Capitol, anytime they're doing construction work, restoration, anything, you can imagine what the crew says. They always talk about Lenthal, and anytime they run into a construction problem, they say that it's Lenthal's curse. So I do get asked all the time for a lot of buildings in D.C., did anyone die while this was being built? And we can say definitively with the United States Capitol building, at least one person was killed in the construction of the building. 
that was awesome i love that so much um yeah so those are our favorite five favorite deaths and as a bonus i always love to mention uh, a guy named edward everett eslick which is quite a name and i edward everett eslick first of all one of the details about him that i enjoy is that he's named for the other man who gave the speech at the Gettysburg Address. So the guy who the main speaker was a guy named Edward Everett, who spoke for like two hours, and then Abraham Lincoln gets up and gives the Gettysburg Address, which is like two and a half minutes. And so Edward Everett Eslick is named for him. He is a congressman from Tennessee, represents the 7th District. He's been in Congress for about a dozen years, and he has one day on the floor of the House of Representatives, uh, he has a heart attack in June of 1932 while he is addressing the House of Representatives in support of something called the Wright-Patman World War I bonus bill, uh, which would have given World War I financial bonuses. He dies there and is immediately succeeded by his wife, Willa McCord Eslick. She is not appointed. In those days, many women were appointed to succeed their husbands in Congress when their husbands died. Willa actually wins an election. She is elected to succeed her husband. Uh, And she becomes, by doing this, the very first woman to serve in Congress from the state of Tennessee. So bonus on that one. One other little little side note I like to mention is a man named Thomas Bolden. We usually talk about Thomas Bolden if you take our Capitol Hill Scandals Tour. In fact, a lot of these get a shout out on our Capitol Hill Scandals Tour. Bolden is unique in his death, not so much like because of who he is, but the circumstances of his death. He was a two-term congressman from Virginia. He was voted out after two years, but he comes back because a man that he had replaced, John Randolph, who gets mentioned in our Henry Clay episode as well, uh, has died. So he comes back to eulogize his fellow Virginian, John Randolph, and he's literally in the middle of the eulogy, and then he just collapses and is declared dead on the floor. So to the best of my research, Thomas Bolden is the only person to have died while eulogizing another dead congressman at the United States Capitol building. And because he's speaking on the floor of the House of Representatives, his last words are enshrined in the house record like someone was taking them down and they talk about how he's eulogizing this guy and all of a sudden in the house record it says and he fell over and expired like that's literally (laughs) (laughs) i think immediately expired was how they described it so yeah he's his death is like actually recorded in the minutes of the house which is And actually, his final words are sort of fascinating because it's sort of a little mysterious. Bolden says, but I cannot tell the reasons why his death was not announced without telling what I told a friend I should say in case. And that's it. In case blank. We don't know. We don't know. It could have been something juicy because John Randolph lived a crazy life. Did live a crazy life. The guy who was he was a little bit of a little bit of a whack job. Yes, good old fashioned whack job. Yes. So it was. It's. uh, I think pretty cool. The only congressman to die while eulogizing another congressman. (laughs) Unique. (laughs) We could probably do a part two of this in the future and talk about some of the other deaths. Maybe we'll do another one next October. Um, But we thought it would be fun to sort of circle back around a little bit to the hauntings. And, you know, a lot of the stories we tell get into politics of a moment or 
or what's happening culturally or with civics. And this was just a way to have a little bit of fun here in October, talk a little bit more about deaths. Uh, again, I really encourage you, if you haven't listened to some of our past episodes, particularly the Henry Clay episode, definitely as well the Charles Lindbergh episode, you'll get some good context for what was happening here. The United States Capitol building, as of the time we're recording this in October 2020, is still closed to the public. However, we will have a virtual tour of the Capitol complex going up on the Free Tours by Foot YouTube channel very soon. So be sure to subscribe to Free Tours by Foot YouTube channel. Not only will we have a virtual tour of the exterior of the Capitol, we have lots of great videos about planning your visit to the Capitol complex uh, and on our website, freetoursbyfoot.com. You'll also be able to find a lot of self-guided information. So while you can't visit right now, um, hopefully that'll reopen soon and we'll be happy to provide you resources to help book a tour or plan your visit. And if you want to hear more deaths and more scandals, definitely check out our Capitol Hill Scandals Tour. We talk about these deaths and several other fun stories and some things that don't involve death. And it's really exciting. It's a great tour if you're going to be in D.C. And of course, all through October, we're running not just our Capitol Hill Scandals Tour, but our ghost tours, our Dark Side of DuPont tours, lots of fun tours through October and hopefully throughout the rest of the fall. So please come out and see us. We're continuing to do small group mass distance tours, and we'd love to see you if you feel comfortable coming out. What are we talking about next week? Oh, next we're going to talk about Rose O'Neill Greenhow, who was a spy during the Civil War. Lady Spies. She ran a web of spies, and it's so exciting. And Henry Wilson makes a cameo, who we talked about today. And Rosa Neal Greenhouse is really great. I'm excited. I am very excited to get into spies. And even Camden's going to jump in for that one, because she's the, like expert on Rosa Neal Greenhow. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us at Tour Guide Tell All. As always, we hope that you will like, subscribe, give us reviews and feedback on this episode wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to check out our show notes online. We try to link to all our favorite resources and uh, photos and things we mentioned in the tour, particularly for this episode. If you like us too, you can always follow us on social media at Tour Guide Tell All. On Twitter, we're at Tour Guide Tell. Uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts and suggestions for future episodes. We're going to be getting into the holiday season. We've got some really fun episodes coming up, so we'd love to hear your thoughts and suggestions. Definitely. Uh, send us emails, tourguidetellall at gmail.com. We would love to interact with you. And if you want to become a patron of uh, the podcast, we are uh, at Patreon, Tour Guide Tell All. Uh, we have different levels and you get special bonus goodies and it's very exciting and we thank all our patreon uh, sponsors we love them so much uh but please leave us a review please subscribe it really 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 does help uh and thank you guys for coming along with us and we'll be back next week and we'll talk some spy stuff see you guys next time thank you bye, bye. Tour Guide Tell All is researched, recorded, edited, and mixed by Becca Grawl, Rebecca Fackner, Dan King, and Candon Arseniega. All tour guides with free tours by foot in Washington, D.C. Help support us and get some special perks by becoming a patron. And if you don't want to sign up for our monthly commitment, you can also send us a virtual tip on Venmo at Tour Guide Tell All, or get some Tour Guide Tell All swag from the merch store, all linked in the show notes. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you next week.